0: Well, greetings, Calvary Bible Fellowship. It is an honor to be with you and be able to speak to you for your conference, your camp. Uh, Just a quick introduction about myself. I mentioned uh, a few weeks ago in the video, promo video you guys saw, I'm I'm married to uh, my beautiful wife, Lana Lee. She's a a busy mom, homeschool teacher, and uh, has her hands full. And my kids are ages 9, 12, and 14, I think. Uh, I am an elder at uh, Littleton Bible Chapel where I serve full-time. That's where we're recording this from. And uh, I do about 70% of the teaching here at this uh, church and also help with a a ministry called Biblical Eldership Resources, which uh, exists to just help churches train elders and uh, uh, bring uh, biblical teaching on the life of the church. And uh, so I think you had... uh, Uh, One of our uh, members, uh, V.G. Roberts, last year for your uh, conference, but you can find more about us at biblicaleldership.com. You should also know that I love India. I have been a few times to uh, southern India, Kerala area, and then up north uh, to Delhi, New Delhi. Never been up to Bangalore, but uh, would love to be there someday, and it is sure a a privilege to be able to speak to you all the way from uh, Colorado Uh, VG said he had a wonderful time with you all, speaking uh, last year, and uh, he said you're all a a very impressive church, and uh, he said I'd love just being able to connect with you all. So it's an honor, even though it's virtual, to be able to connect. I look forward to uh, our fireside chat uh, on Saturday morning, I believe it is. Uh, But we are very excited about the work that you are doing, and if there's any way we can come alongside you and partner with you, just know uh, that is our heart's desire. It's my heart's desire just to fellowship with you and to encourage one another. Uh, The theme of the conference is Marks of a Healthy Church. Uh, The name for this in theological terms is ecclesiology, Uh, Now, you are the ones who picked this theme, and I'm glad you did, because I honestly don't think there is a more uh, significant, a more pressing, uh, a more urgent need for the church today than a revival of understanding of the doctrine of ecclesiology. Uh, In the next few sessions, we are going to explore the plan and purpose of the church, the glorious church of Jesus Christ, and I hope by the end of this conference, you and your church will have a, a clear plan, a clear vision, and some application uh, for the next few days and months and uh, years to come. So may the Lord bless this time. COVID 19, as you know, was a reset in many different ways. The coronavirus created uh, all kinds of problems for, uh, for elders, for churches. Uh, physically and spiritually many people uh, even many leaders have not fully recovered from just the aftermath not again just physically but but emotionally spiritually it has taken a toll on the church i think of just 2 years ago there was hardly a church in colorado that was meeting when this first uh, happened there were so many unknowns uh, do we meet do we not meet Uh, Do we live stream? How do we live stream? What if people become addicted to live stream? What if people prefer to stay home and live stream even after and when the pandemic ends? Uh, Do we live stream the Lord's Supper? Why or why not? Uh, There's no question in my mind that as we look back on the year 2020 and the year 2021, and really this season of COVID, That again, the primary doctrine that will rise to the top of all others is this doctrine of ecclesiology, our understanding of of the nature of the church, the attributes of the church, the purpose of the church, uh, the application of the church to the world. And I think COVID has exposed and revealed certain things. It uh, revealed what we believe about the importance of gathering together. It revealed what we believe about the importance of preaching the Word of God. It revealed what we believe about the Great Commission. Uh, So I have a total of four different messages. Uh, The first one is the glorious Church of Jesus Christ, Uh, the second one will be the purpose of the church. The third one will be the characteristics of the Great Commission, and the last one will be the result of the Great Commission. In the last two messages, I want to get more practical and offer you, uh, hopefully, a lot of application for you in your own uh, context, specifically with biblical education and church planting, both of which are directly tied to the Great Commission and the purpose of the church. Uh, But this first message, you'll have to bear with me because there's a lot of scripture and this is a very theological message, but it's important we understand uh, the foundation of the church, the nature of the church, the attributes of the church, and who the head of the church is. This is fundamental to our understanding of really the rest of our time and the rest of this uh, conference. So this first message is really about the big picture of ecclesiology. I have three points, the nature of the church, the attributes of the church, and the head of the church. But I want to start with the nature of the church. And I want us to back way, way, way up. God's plan for the church actually began in eternity past. 2 Timothy 1, verse 8, Jesus, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, before the ages began. Ephesians 1, 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 3, verse 10 says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose of, that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So this has started a long, long time ago, but let's let's look at how it all started. In, In Genesis, along comes a man named Abraham, and God makes a promise to him in Genesis 12, verse 3. He says this, "'I will bless those who bless you, "'and him who dishonors you I will curse, "'and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed.'" Abraham became really the prototype for all believers in the one true God. He's the father of faith because he believed the promise by faith. He couldn't see it, but he was a believer. Uh, He became the father of all believers. From Abraham came Isaac and came Jacob, whose name was changed, as you know, to Israel. His family grew so much it became a nation and an entire uh, people of God. Jesus, of course, is from this tribe. When Jesus came on the scene, he came as prophet, priest, and king. But he was also the perfect Israelite. But as you know, the leaders of Israel rejected him. He came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. Israel has rejected their Messiah. This all comes to a head when they basically accuse Jesus of being Uh, satanic, right after that, Jesus begins preaching on the mystery or the secret of the kingdom. You have to understand that all Jews really expected a literal kingdom where the Messiah would come and he would rule and he would reign and uh, the whole world would come under the dominion of this king. And that's true. That will happen, by the way. There are hundreds of passages that talk about this in the prophets. So Jesus comes along and he's preaching and proclaiming the kingdom and he's healing people and he's reversing the curse just like the kingdom describes. But then he starts preaching about the mystery of the kingdom. Well, what is this secret? What is this mystery that Jesus is revealing? We see it in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, This kingdom would be spiritual, not physical, at first. And again, as I mentioned, every Jew was expecting that the kingdom would come in apocalyptic power like the book of Daniel talks about. But the secret of the kingdom is that it would be spiritual and then later on physical. This was a new truth. The secrets of the kingdom now reveal that an entire age would Would intervene between Israel's rejection of her king and her later acceptance of her king. The kingdom would come quietly and indiscreetly between the first and second comings of Jesus. So we are in this stage right now, and this is when the church is born. So the mystery of the kingdom that Jesus is preaching about is that there will be a gap between or before his kingdom comes to earth. As he tells us to pray, may your kingdom come. It's a prayer. When the Old Testament prophets looked forward to the Messiah and the kingdom, they saw no gap between the first and second coming. In fact, they expected that the kingdom would come when the king came. And that was it. In fact, even Isaiah the prophet says, For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. They did not anticipate a gap between when the child was born, Christmas, and when the government is on his shoulders, the messianic Kingdom. That's the mystery that Jesus reveals in the Gospel of Matthew. So the mystery that Jesus is revealing is that there would be this this gap, this time period between the first and second comings of Christ, and it would be the church age. It would be the age of the Holy Spirit. It would be the age of sowing the seed of the Gospel. And it would be also an age marked by hostility and rejection, in fact, Many or most of the parables Jesus tells really are about that. So the full kingdom won't come until the end of the age. I was thinking by way of illustration, if you remember when, when God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt and gave them the promised land, all they really had to do was accept it, uh, take it, believe the promise. The spies came back from looking at the land and tasting the fruits and they said, nah, eh, we don't want to do it. People are too big. We've tasted the land. It's a beautiful land, but, but uh, we can't do it. We don't want it. Only Caleb and Joshua said, no, we should go. But as a result, God judged them and said they would wander in the desert for 40 years. The fulfillment of the promised land would be postponed by 40 years. Well, I think the same thing, in a sense, is happening when Jesus arrives. The kingdom of God had arrived. The leaders of Israel had even tasted of the fruits of the kingdom. They had seen it, but they rejected it. In fact, they said that fruit was satanic. Here's my main point. The rejection of the Jews opened a door for the Gentiles to be grafted in. And this really was the beginning of the church. This rejection of the Jews led to a postponement of the kingdom in some ways, and it led to the inclusion of the Gentiles. And by the way, this was all God's plan and purpose and design. Paul says in Romans 11 that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. And this actually made it possible for Gentiles to come to saving faith and be grafted into the nourishing root of Israel, the olive tree. So now God is dealing, you might say, with a new group of people, both Jew and Gentile, a new group of called-out ones, a new group made up of believing Jews and Gentiles, a new assembly. The church doesn't replace Israel, but the Gentile believers are grafted into Israel. And there's now a new body, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the household of God. And these, again, these Gentile believers don't supersede or replace Israel. But how do we describe this church? What are some metaphors used to describe this new assembly? One scholar has pointed out there are over 95 different images to describe the church in the New Testament. I want to just mention a few of these to help us understand the nature of the church. First of all, the word church is primarily designated by the Greek word ekklesia, a term meaning those who are called out or the called out ones. So in the New Testament sense, it's an assembly of called out ones, an assembly of the redeemed. But there are so many metaphors and images for the church, and none of them are comprehensive, interestingly. Interestingly. Here's some of the main ones. The church is the people of God. The church is the new creation. Uh, We might think of new creation in individual terms, and that's true as well. We're a, a new creation, all those who are in Christ. The old is gone, new has come. But that's also true corporately. The church is also the fellowship or communion in the faith. John 17, Jesus talks about this. We have fellowship with Christ. We have fellowship with one another. The church is also described, as you know, as the body of Christ. When Paul talks about spiritual gifts, he uses this imagery of a body with many different parts. In the Lord's Supper, Paul says, Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. In Ephesians 3, Paul argued that Jewish and Gentile believers belong to the same body. At Paul's conversion, the risen Christ says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? So Jesus' identity is so tied up with his people, his body, he takes persecution of his people as if it's persecution to himself. The church is also a household or a family. In fact, this is the primary metaphor used in the Bible. The church is a family of brothers and sisters. And, and of all, again, of all the images and all the metaphors, uh, this one is the most frequent. Let me give you a few examples. Ephesians 2 verse 19. We are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're part of a household. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Listen to some of the practices of the early church and what they did. They met in homes. They shared material possessions. They ate together. They greeted one another with a holy kiss. They showed hospitality when it was appropriate. At times, they disciplined members of a family. The older ones mentored the younger ones. We could go on, but the early church was a family. Uh, we are a family. Other images I'll just mention briefly, the church is a herald of the gospel, the church is the bride of Christ, the church is a building, the church is a temple, the church is a community of people who live in the last days inaugurated by Christ's earthly ministry and the coming of the Spirit. The church is the salt of the earth, the church is a letter from Christ. So that I hope gives us some kind of a framework for the nature of the church. But now I want to talk about the attributes of the church. What are the attributes, the characteristics, the traits of the church? Uh, the Church Council at Nicaea defined the church by four key words, which I think would help us understand some of the attributes of the church. It is number 1 holy or number rather it is one, it is holy, it is universal, and it is apostolic those adjectives really uh, are a reflection of god of god's unity of his holiness his immensity his immensity his eternality his truthfulness so i want to go through these each of them the first is that it's there's one church one church now you might be saying one church really i can think of a lot of different churches in bangalore i could Give you hundreds of churches in Bangalore. And the church seems pretty fragmented. And yet the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. There's only one church because there's only one God. Christ is the head, the church is his body, one head, one body. There are not many bodies, there's one body, one church. And the kind of unity that Paul has in mind is a unity that that centers around a certain kind of content. And this is really important. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. He's not talking about a a superficial unity, a pretend unity unity. If you don't agree with the one faith of the apostles, there's no unity at all. Again, in John 17, verse 20, Jesus prays for unity, and I want you to note that prayer is answered. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, a lot of times that verse is used as sort of a plea for unity. But actually, that's a prayer that has been answered. Unity isn't a wish. It's a fact. It's a reality. The prayer was answered when the Spirit came. Again, it's a fact, not a hope. All who are in Christ are one by the Spirit. There's one baptism, one Spirit, one Lord. And unity that is genuine is a unity surrounding the truth, the faith. Our unity surrounds the scriptures, apostolic teaching. Unity without the truth is really a hoax, it's a fraud, it's a fake. The next aspect of the church church I want to give you, next attribute, is the fact that it's the holy church. The church is holy because the head of the church is holy. Ephesians 5 says of husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The church is not perfect in holiness but it's being perfected in holiness we're not cut off from the world but we're to be different we're to be separate not worldly not corrupt but set apart holy if you think about it the apostle paul constantly refers to believers as saints saint just means christian if you're born again in christ you are a saint you you are set apart you are holy And not just the Christian, but the church has been set apart from the world for a specific mission, which we'll talk about. The church is to reflect the character of God. The church is holy. The Christian is holy. Third, it's a universal church. Sometimes this is called the the Catholic Church, lowercase c, not to be confused with the Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic just means universal And this means the church stretches upon time and space. In the book of Acts, we see this. The beginning of the church, they spread their message to uh, every ethnos, every ethnicity, every nation. Jesus said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Because of this, the church will spread to all nations. Nations. And all Christians who are truly born again are part of this universal body that stretches across space and time. The church is universal. But the last one might be the most relevant for us today. It's the apostolic church. I think of all these attributes I've mentioned, this one is the most under attack today. The word apostle just means sent one. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. But the apostles are the foundation that rests upon the cornerstone. If you look at the images of of, uh, Revelation, Revelation 21, we read this description. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So even the new Jerusalem is based upon the foundation of the apostles. And here's where it it gets more practical. If you reject the apostles and reject their teaching, really you are rejecting Christ who sent them. A rejection of the, the teaching of the apostles really is a rejection of the authority of God. You don't get to say as many people in America say today, well, I like Jesus, but I don't really like the church, or I like Jesus, but I don't really like the apostles. Uh, That doesn't really make sense, because Jesus sent Paul. He sent the apostles. There's a reason Jesus chose and raised up apostles. They were the official uh, messengers and transmitters of Christ's teaching. Paul tells the Ephesians that they had been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So, in other words, you don't get to invent your own gospel. You don't get to choose your own theology. If it's not what Jesus and the apostles taught, it's not Christianity. Theologian Edmund Clowney said it well, to compromise the authority of Scripture is to destroy the apostolic foundation of the church. Uh, the late R.C. Sproul, theologian, tells this story. He said, I remember that in the 1970s when I was in Pennsylvania at uh, Ligonier Valley Study Center, we hosted a group of Christians who had come from France to visit us. It was a group of charismatic Christians. They they shared their charismatic experience, but they were from a wide diversity of ecclesiastical backgrounds. Some were Lutheran. Some were Roman Catholic. Some were Pentecostal. Some were Presbyterian. They talked with great joy and excitement about the unity that they had experienced as being one in the Spirit. Sproul says, I was amazed at their obvious sense of unity, so I said to them, how have you been able to overcome some of these serious historical differences that you have? And they said, well, like what, for instance? So I mentioned a couple of them, and I was, it was the wrong thing to do because in five minutes they were at each, other, at each other's throats uh, arguing over these things. In other words, Sproul says, they were able to have their unity as long as they set aside their doctrinal differences. You know, we live in a a culture, in a context here in Colorado and America that sort of says ignore doctrine, suppress doctrine. We'll even hear this phrase, uh, doctrine divides. Don't make too much of doctrine. You know, chill out, relax a little bit about your doctrine. Now listen, don't misunderstand me. There are plenty of areas where Christians can agree to disagree on. We have differences in, uh, you know, in spiritual gifts or end times or things like that, but we're still believers. That's, that's a good thing. That's a normal thing. But when it comes to the content of the gospel, we need to have unity. The church is apostolic. We don't invent our own theology. We are built upon what Christ and the apostles have taught. We come under them. We come under that teaching. Now, the last point on the message of, this message of the glorious church is the glorious head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to share a couple passages with you. We'll start with Ephesians 1, chapter Chapter 1, verse 22, which says he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then later in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Uh, New Testament scholar Lightfoot said this about the word head. He said, it means that Christ is the inspiring, ruling, guiding, combining sustaining power, the mainspring of its activity, the center of its unity, and the seat of its life. The church finds its life in Christ. In every way, the church finds its life in Christ. So I want to talk about what some of the functions of Christ's headship looks like in the church. What exactly does Christ do for the church? Let me offer a few functions, and I have a number of passages here, so bear with me. But first of all, he saves the church. Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Paul's talking here to the Ephesian elders before his farewell. But then he says, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood as it's patently obvious Jesus saves the church he obtained the church with his own blood Matthew 26 verse 27 the last supper he took the cup when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying drink of it all of you for this is my body this is the the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins Jesus poured out his blood for the forgiveness of sins, the sins of the church. Hebrews 9, 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats, calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. If you are in the church, if you are a follower of Christ, he has secured for you your eternal redemption. Redemption. Praise the Lord, amen? He saves the church. Christ has saved us. Second of all, he sanctifies the church. I know I've read it already, but let me say it again. Ephesians 5, 25, or 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he might, that she might be holy and without blemish. He sanctifies the church. He also shepherds the church. Hebrews 13 verse 20 says the great shepherd of the sheep, reference to Christ. 1 Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd appears, Peter says. He he is the chief shepherd, uh, you could say the senior pastor of the church. Elders are just under-shepherds of the chief shepherd. He shepherds the church. You know, elders' jobs, one of their jobs is to... Uh, be under shepherds, really under the chief shepherd, the real shepherd. And I find that as an elder here in this assembly, as a as a profound encouragement to me, that really my job, and the job of any elder, is to get people to the chief shepherd. Uh, elders can't possibly know all the spiritual needs and dealings of your heart, uh, but Christ does, and He is your shepherd. Look to Him. Praise the Lord for your elders, uh, but your true and better elder is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the shepherd of your soul. He cares for you. He also sustains and grows the church. Colossians 2.19 says this, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. If you want to grow as a Christian, you need to be attached to the body And the head. The head is Christ, the body is the church. That is how you are sustained, that's how you grow. Ephesians 5, again, Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. Make it personal. He nourishes and cherishes you, He sustains you. Uh, Jesus says in, in John 15, I am the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, Jesus is the life source of the body, the church. So, just a reminder, your life comes from Christ. Uh, Really important we understand this. Your life source is Jesus, your leader, your head, your savior, your director, your sustainer, your power, your life is all wrapped up in Christ. Forget that to your detriment. Like the vine and the branch, apart from him, you and I can do nothing. That's why on Sunday morning or whenever the church gathers, the best thing the elders can do is point you to Christ. And the worst thing is to not do that. This is why believers come together on on Sunday morning and feast on Jesus and take the bread and take the cup. He's our life source. He's our sustenance we need him like we need food. He sustains us. He also intercedes for the church. I love this. Romans eight thirty four. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who has, was raised. Who's at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Do you re- realize that if Christ wasn't interceding for you and I, we would be goners. We wouldn't last a minute We have no hope. He is interceding. I think of, you know, if if I could somehow lose my salvation, I would. Uh, But Christ is interceding. Christ is sustaining. Christ is my security. I have no hope apart from him interceding for me. He also teaches the church. This is important to remember. Matthew 23, verse 10 says, You have one instructor, Jesus says, the Christ. One instructor, the Christ. Not only do we have his teachings in the Gospels, but again, he teaches us through the Holy Spirit and through the apostles, which we have in the scriptures. I think of John 16, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He does that through uh, the rest of the New Testament, through the apostles. The last one I'll mention is that he rules the church. All authority is his, Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth belong to Christ. All authority is his. And how is that authority mediated? One of the ways it's mediated is through his word. The Bible tells us that Christ, again, is the cornerstone of the church But the foundation of the church rests really upon the apostles and the prophets. Again, Ephesians 2, verse 20. You're no longer strangers and aliens, your fellow citizens, saints, and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So I know we've mentioned that a few times, but it's good to remember our rock, our foundation is Christ. But it's also apostolic teaching which, again, is the New Testament, the Scriptures. So Christ is the cornerstone of the foundation, but the foundation also includes the the confession of the apostles, the teaching of the apostles. And again, at the risk of being redundant, where do we find the teaching of the apostles? Well, we find it in the New, New Testament. How does Christ rule and shepherd his church today? Through his word through the teaching of the apostles. And again, if we cut ourselves off from that, we do it to our own demise and detriment. Apart from him, we can do nothing. I was thinking it's become somewhat trendy in churches in America recently to cancel their Sunday morning gathering and instead replace it with a service project. So one Sunday they'll meet, they gather together, they sing, Uh, pray, they hear a sermon, and then the next Sunday, they cancel their Sunday service and instead just uh, do a service project or serve the poor. Now, I have no issue with service projects, obviously, but I do have a a problem with churches that keep their people from the word. It's our greatest need. Cancelling Sunday morning to go serve is a terrible idea. The church needs the word of God. The church needs the Lord's Supper. The church needs to gather together and encourage one another, pray for one another, fellowship with one another. We need Christ. The church needs Christ. And a proper view of Christ's headship should drive the church to Christ. Our job is to exalt and lift up and magnify Christ. And point people to Jesus Christ. He's the one who saves. He's the one who sanctifies. He's the one who shepherds. He's the one who intercedes. He's the one who teaches. He's the one who disciplines. He's the one who rules. He's what people need. And the best thing we can do is point people to Jesus Christ. The best thing we can do is what John the Baptist did. And said, hey, can I have your attention? Can I have your attention? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The church should be people who are obsessed with Christ, who love Christ, who live for Christ, who proclaim Christ. As Paul said, him we proclaim. People aren't saved by service projects. People aren't saved by Christians being nice or Christians being cool or Christians being hip. People are saved by Christ alone. So get them to Christ. I want to turn our attention to our final passage I have for you in Colossians 1, where we see the preeminence of Christ. This is a beautiful passage. Colossians 1, verse 15, says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent in everything. Now, Paul gives a great description of Christ and his role as head of the church, and he starts off with this amazing description of Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn is an important word to understand. It can either refer to timing or it can refer to priority. The the apostle's speaking here of priority. Uh, Christ has the position of priority and preeminence. Uh, Israel was also called the firstborn in the sense that they were preeminent among the other nations. They had a privileged status. But I want you to see what Paul does here because it's beautiful. He's describing the preeminence of Christ. In verse 16, he starts with the cosmos, the universe He created all things, for by him all things were created. All things were created within his sphere of influence. The Father seems to indicate initiate it, but the power to do it comes from Jesus. Skip to the end of verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. The purpose and goal of the universe is actually in relation to Jesus Christ. This is amazing to me. The purpose and goal of creation is to glorify him. The purpose and goal of creation of the church, purpose and goal of the church is to glorify him. All things were created through him and for him. It all exists for the glory of Christ. So there's a comprehensiveness to his preeminence. He mentions also in verse 16 the unseen world. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. The point here is literally all things. He mentions all four times, and that includes the unseen world, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Here's what Paul is doing, and I want you to see it. Jesus Christ has first place in the universe, verse 16 and 17. Jesus Christ has first place in the unseen world, verse 16. And Jesus Christ has first place. In the church, verse 18. Look at verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Literally have first place. Over all things, mentioned four times, then everything. And again, the the point is to imply the comprehensiveness of his preeminence. Paul goes from talking about the universe and everything in it to now talking about the church. He says in verse 18, he's the head of the body, the church. And again, there's that word, ekklesia, assembly. If you think about it, in the context of the book of Colossians, it means the little assembly of Christians uh, meeting in Philemon's house. So think about this. He goes from talking about the universe to a little house church in Turkey. Paul's saying in the most profound way That the entire world is a creation of Jesus Christ. He brought it into being. And now the church is the new creation of Christ. He brought it into being. Just like he oversaw creation and now upholds the universe and holds it together by his word. He now oversees the church and holds her together and guides her by his word. Do you see it? The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. He's in the minutia of creation. He's in the minutia of the universe. He's in the minutia of the church. He sustains the universe. He sustains the church. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the church by his word. He carries out his desires in the universe, and he carries out his desires in his body, the church. Glory be to his name. So let's give him first place. Let me just close with a, a story about Eric Alexander. He's one of the most famous preachers in the world. He's from, he's from Scotland. He's a Scottish preacher. His brother led Eric to Christ. He was in the church of Scotland. He thought he was a Christian, but he wasn't. And later, Eric's brother led his father and his mother to Christ. He was an exceptional man, a very mature Uh, young Christian man. Eric's brother died when he was uh, 29 years old. He was only three short years uh, in the ministry, just a very, very brief time. After his brother died, Eric received his brother's personal journal, and he's going through it, and he's reading through it, and he comes upon this statement in his journal. His brother said, in some people's lives, Jesus Christ has no place. In every Christian's life, Jesus Christ does have a place. In many Christians' lives, Jesus Christ has a prominent place. But in a few Christians' lives, I have found that Jesus Christ has a preeminent place. So let me ask you, does Jesus have first place in your church? Does he have first place in your life? Does he have first place in your families? Does he have first place in your marriage? Does he have first place in your professions? Does he have first place in ministry, in missions? Does he have first place in matters of the intellect? Does he have first place in your time? Does he have first place in conversation? Does he have first place in pleasure? Does he have first place in eating? in drinking, in play? Does he have first place in athletics? Does he have first place in what we watch? Does he have first place in music? Does he have first place in our worship? Because all things were created through him and for him. Does he have first place in your life? I said I had one last illustration. I I lied. I have one more. I want to leave you with. Donald Gray Barnhouse was one of America's finest preachers. Uh, He pastored one of America's most famous churches that was around for around 200 years and remained faithful to the Word of God. Uh, It was called 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Barnhouse was one of the very first preachers to go on the radio during that time, and he told a story, and it was back in the 1950s. And Dr. Barnhouse said this, He said, if Satan took over Philadelphia, his most diabolical ploy would be this. All the bars would be closed. All pornography would be banished. All the streets of Philly would be clean and filled with polite, law-abiding citizens who smiled at each other. All swearing would be gone. All the children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And all the churches would be filled to overflowing to the point there would be no room, not even for one more Philadelphian to fit into a pew in that city. The very deadly diabolical danger, Barnhouse said, would be this. And it would be Satan's schemes at its most strategic point. In all these churches, Christ would never be preached. There would be religion without Christ. There would be preaching without Christ. There would be morality without Christ. There would be the gospel without Christ. In short, you'd have a Christianity without Christ. Oh, may you consider in this camp, consider during this conference, uh, the marks of a healthy church, uh, the nature of the church, the attributes of the church but more than anything may you consider the preeminence of Christ in his glorious church may the lord be pleased to bring about a reformation and revival revival for both you and for me for your church and our church uh, that we would make Christ preeminent let me pray for us father we thank you for your word And I ask, Lord, now as we consider these things, uh, by the power of your Spirit, help us to be creative. Help us to think through uh, how to bring you honor and glory in the world and in the church and in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name.